Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain academics and certain super smoochy superhero comics into conversation. You heard that right. Today, we're looking at a pair of superhero romances from 1985, Anne Nascenti and Don Perlin's Beauty and the Beast, and Steve Englehart and Richard Howell's Vision and the Scarlet Witch, Volume 2. We'll be talking about genre bending and melodrama and perhaps queer subtext and definitely Wanda Maximoff's stellar pregnancy fashion and lots, lots, lots more. These are a couple of my favorite series, and I'm over the moon excited to hash them out with you today. So, as usual, we will start with a introduction to each of our texts. I don't know which of you it makes sense to go first, but how about you, Andrew? Can you introduce us to Beauty and the Beast? What if you took the usual graduate study seminar in which young, highly intelligent, but perhaps a little naive people pontificate about the political and socioeconomic evils that plague mankind, but instead of having them fight with words, you gave them superpowers and swords and also words? Beauty and the Beast is a four-issue miniseries by Anne Nascenti, with art by Don Perlin. It's first issue published in December of 1984. The story is difficult to describe, but rich with symbolic complexity, which is both its greatest strength and, at times, maybe its greatest weakness. It presents itself as a love story on the surface between established characters of Hank McCoy, a.k.a. original X-Man Beast, and Alison Blair, at the time Marvel's biggest recent bust as Dazzler, a character intended to be a new model of transmedia storytelling who would create a new paradigm of an integrated cross-platform Marvel universe, but instead created only a brief solo series and a cult graphic novel that has been traditionally appreciated ironically. The story actually spends very little time on the romance, however, and few of the plot movements revolve around the relationship itself. Instead, the story focuses on a theater troupe that is actually a gladiatorial arena, that is actually an army in training, that is actually a complex metaphor about the systemic exploitation of marginalized groups. Also, Dr. Doom is there, though it might be his most ineffectual appearance ever. He's just sort of there. Also, Hank becomes a supervillain briefly, but the narrative doesn't seem to be aware of that. As I said, this is a deeply strange story, but it has a lot of compelling pieces to it, a lot of experimentation, and more than anything, a lot of ideas in transmission. Ideas that I'm delighted to be able to mull over with our panel today, who were all at one time naive, overbearing graduate students locked in an eternal combat with each other. I'm already like pushing back against that intro in the sense that I don't think this comic is ironic at all. Although I think you're suggesting we're appreciating it ironically. Anyway, oh, we're no, gonna. Sorry, that was the gra the Dazzler graphic novel that preceded it. Oh, it okay. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> well, we're definitely going to come back to irony regardless as a topic. But um, Michael, would you like to uh, introduce us to Vision and the Scarlet Witch? Uh, the 1980s saw the debut of a new storytelling structure in mainstream comic books, the maxi-series. Typically 12 issues in length, the maxi-series tended to function in two primary ways. First, it could provide the space for a crossover epic that has repercussions for the entire line, as was seen in Marvel's Secret Wars or DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm. Or second, it could be a self-contained story that pushes the superhero genre in strange directions, such as Camelot 3000, Squadron Supreme, or arguably the most well-known example, Moore and Gibbon's Watchmen. Neither of these approaches really describe Steve Englehart and Richard Howell's Vision and Scarlet Witch. Granted, 
It draws on characters and ideas from across the Marvel verse, from the pages of X-Men, Fantastic Four, and the Avengers. But the scope is never quite that earth-shattering, and the crises that arrive are more of the small C variety. In fact, I would go as far as to say the series is incomplete. It begins with the aftermath of a major Avengers plotline, it quickly crosses over into Engelhardt's other title, The West Coast Avengers, and it leaves threads hanging, including a dark turn for a white-haired speedster. But before I continue this outrageous impugning of an underrated, yet incomplete, classic, let's take a quick look at the creative team. Artist Richard Howell began his career outside of the big two, self-publishing Portia Prins of the Glamazons, and editing the New Media Airjacks line alongside his partner, Carol Kalish. He began work for Marvel and DC in the 1980s, including an ongoing Hawkman series with Tony Isabella and this 12-issue series with Engelhart. He co-founded Claypool Comics in the 1990s and served as a long-running editor for titles that included Deadbeats, Elvira, Phantom of Fear City, and Soul Searchers. Steve Engelhart, on the other hand, began his work in comics as an art assistant to Neil Adams, then excelled at Marvel with Beast Strips in Amazing Adventures, which saw the Beast transformed into his blue furry form. He integrated Patsy Walker into the Marvel Universe and wrote lengthy runs on the Avengers and Doctor Strange. This particular story is part of his second wind at Marvel, returning after a somewhat acrimonious split. In short, for both creators, this is a work more or less in the middle of their careers. Perhaps not their highest point, but certainly not a lowest one. It's a point where both are well-established and masterful of their craft. Hmm. Now that there's time for tempers to cool, I'll say it again. Vision and the Scarlet Witch is incomplete. But it's that incompleteness that makes it great. Instead of a single unified storyline, we get a series of episodes as villains such as Salem Seven, the Grim Reaper, and <clears throat> the Terrible Toad King weave in and out of the lead's lives. To a certain extent, the villains are irrelevant. What matters more is the connections Wanda and Vision form with others, the self-exploration each embarks on, and above else, their relation to each other as newlyweds and expecting parents to be. The story is incomplete because its leads' lives are still unfolding, growing, changing. The illusion of change is an integral part of comics and superheroes, but in this particular book, Inglehart masters it very well. The series gimmicks of many of the issues being set on important dates, such as Christmas, Thanksgiving, and uh, tax season, <laughs> works well to the, mark the advancement of Wanda's pregnancy, but also to give a sense that change is possible and happening right before our eyes. It's not a perfect series. Incompleteness is messy, chaotic. But because of the space and relations it grants Wanda and Vision, because it gives them room and time to explore themselves and each other, this incomplete book may be the best romance Marvel's ever published. Oh boy, I'm glad you wow. recovered. You recovered nicely, Michael. I was I was tense through was your impugning of the series because this is one of my all-time faves that. and you knew that and you did well. <laughs> The first question I wanted to ask both of you, although Andrew, your um, intro might be pushing back against this a little bit, was about the genre bending of both of these series and that they're combining mm. sort of romance and superheroes in some interesting ways. So romance has been part of the Marvel Universe almost from the beginning, and it's been part of superhero comics 
literally from the beginning with the stories of Superman and Wonder Woman, including ongoing romantic subplots. And yet I would argue that these two series are examples of genre bending to the extent that romance and superheroics are almost on equal footing. Again, Andrew, you might want to push back against that. And <laughs> I wondered if it struck a chord with uh, the both of you the same way. Like, did you feel that these comics felt like examples of genre bending or did they just feel like regular old superhero comics? Did you really feel that kind of intrusion of romance into the superhero world? I think for me, it was kind of a study in opposites a little bit. Like as much as they're similar on the surface, to me, I felt that Beauty and the Beast was using the trappings of romance to tell a sort of politically minded superhero story. Mm -hmm. And then um, um, Vision and Scarlet, which I felt was using the trappings of superhero comics to tell a romance story. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. I love that. I love that. The thing that I wanted to ask both of you as a follow up, but I want to hear Michael's answer first is like, what is the stance of either of these comics like on romance? Because I think Beauty and the Beast is kind of anti-romance in certain ways, whereas Vision of the Scarlet Witch, I would argue, is almost all in on romance. But I'm, I'm interested to hear your response, Michael. I often have a hard time uh, with Nascenti's books that I feel like she foregrounds the ideological mm. or societal issue that the books she's covering is dealing with almost over either aspect romance or superhero and what this read to me more than anything is that it reminded me of uh the podcast you must remember this and just the idea that to me what this is above all is kind of a hollywood uh thriller story of the the couple that get too uh implicated in the seedy underworld of hollywood and have to yeah. kind of fight their way out of it it's got film noir elements for sure and the yes. nature of that relationship felt very film noir to me just a sort of intense very adult style passion yeah i mean the thing that i'm curious about in the beauty and the beast series which surprised me like i don't have as long of a history with that series i'd kind of like read an issue of it like years and years and years ago and then finally read it properly like a couple of years ago and then obviously reread it for this but i was surprised by like the lack of sexuality in the series to be perfectly honest like given mm. i've read a lot of nascenti's other books and it's not that they were super sexual, but definitely the sexuality was a lot more explicit in something like her run on Daredevil, which she begins right after this, than it is here. I mean, I don't think there's really much suggestion at all that like Dazzler and Beast have a physical relationship. They kiss like twice and that's like basically it, but there's very little kind of like physical kind of interaction or bonding between the two of them. Did that stand out to you guys as well? Or did, was that just expected because yeah. this is superheroes and like we don't have sexuality in superhero comics? I mean, I think Nascenti's work in general, apart from maybe her Daredevil run, um, I think the foregrounding of the sort of um, ideological issues that Michael mentioned almost desexualize it mm. at times. But I also think for me, a lot of the issue here is Perlin. Um, like there's a lot of great ways just with subtle body posture and gesture and expression. I think he really could have played up that kind of taboo element of the Beast and Allison together. You know, even just like when they're on, on the beach together and they're both wearing essentially next to nothing. Um, but it felt weirdly asexual to me. Um, and to me, that's kind of a lost opportunity for an illustrator to really invest a subtext visually into a narrative. But again, I think that that, that might just be me subjectively thinking that. It's an interesting pairing in that the reader, well, Dazzler is still a pretty new character, but mm -hmm. generally the reader knows both of these characters a lot better than they know each other. 
So there's a <laughs> kind of getting to know each other step that doesn't really happen. Yeah. It's more of what they symbolize for each other. Well, why yeah, don't we talk about, maybe we should talk about like the viability of either of these couples as couples. And let's start with Beast and Dazzler. Like, what was the connection that was being drawn between these two characters in this comic? Like, did it speak to us as effective at all? Like, why do they like each other? Like, what is the romance? And I mean, we can that situate it. <laughs> it is a great question. I mean, like, I think there's that scene in issue number four where they're hanging upside down and they have this really... Yeah, that, that was the I, one scene, right? <laughs> yeah, I hate to say this because you know I love Nasenti, <laughs> but a real darn, darn, like, wooden conversation <laughs> in which, like, he makes this horrible comment about, like, man, it's just like when bullies kill cats. And she's like, God, what a horrible <laughs> thing to say. And then he's like, sorry, I make jokes when I'm stressed. And she's like, it is your ribald sense of humor that is the thing that I like about you, Beast. Oh, well. And I'm like, wow, what? <laughs> this was not convincing. I mean, like, I guess it's just coming at this from pod knows, world knows. I'm a huge Nightcrawler fan. So coming at this, like, from that perspective, of like thinking about how a character like that who's so similar to Beast in some ways would work so differently in this story like it's like there was nothing in the story about her being attracted to his beastness which really yeah. surprised me because I assumed the story would go there and like there was nothing she makes a comment about like I just can't get used to your fur oh well and I'm like what and that's it like I mean the fur could be an advantage as well as a disadvantage and you'd think that they would both realize that but I was surprised to see that not even referenced in the text yeah, and maybe that's where um, the the series failed to really subvert the title, because like there are images that that are um, iconic to the Beauty and the Beast myth throughout mm -hmm. the story, right? Um, the rose bushes being, I think, the big one. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. but like, the point of the narrative is that he's not a beast, uh, and that she appreciates him on a level that isn't again this raw physical attraction to his uh, primal whatever. Um, but at the same time, his attraction to her seems kind of superficial to me. Like, like mm -hmm. he's he's full on threatening to murder people to get to her after like getting a glimpse of her, uh, and and I don't know, I feel like that was maybe a lost opportunity. One thing that I think could account for it a little bit is I, I think a lot of the romance sort of um, um, stage evolution is happening between issues, and I kind of like that strategy. I think that can work where you put the characters together, and then the next month you pick it up, and their relationship has evolved, and you sort of fill in the the blanks in your your mind. Um, but when reading it, obviously, as we did, um, sort of all back to back binge reading it, I think you lose that effect a little bit. So I feel like this might be an example of a romantic story that would work better serialized with a month apart. Yeah, yeah, I could see that argument. I mean, how about you, Michael? Did you find anything convincing about the Beast as the romance? And we are going to get to why Vision and Scarlet Witch are the perfect romance. But let, let's interrogate this terrible romance first. <laughs> Maybe part of this is that I don't have the, like, Allison's kind of heyday is the 1980s, and I don't have a very deep knowledge of where the character really goes from here. Uh, they're, at least in this, other than her role as kind of like the, the fallen starlet, mm -hmm. um, there wasn't a lot to her at this point yeah. like the the archetype kind of overwhelmed the character whereas beast at least i have probably because of my own associations with him 
the personality could come through a bit more. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, how much Allison was mired in gender tropes was another thing that I found weird about this story. But I mean, maybe, I mean, I suggested before that Beauty and the Beast is almost anti-romance. Like, do you think that that was the point of the story, that this romance is too mired in gender tropes to be viable? Because we had the thing at the end where, you know, they have the line about, you know, maybe we can escape all of this stuff like into romance. And then it's like ironic. Right. And they're like, of course, they can't escape into romance. That's not going to be a viable escape at all. And then they decide they need to stand alone on their own two feet and not be in a relationship because it isn't the solution to their problems. Like, I mean, so do you think that was the point? Do you think sort of like the unconvincingness of this relationship was intentional? Maybe. I think... The scene you're describing is four panels, none of which depict the characters involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? So, so it does sort of... Um, Very representative of that falling into yeah. ideas and away from character, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think maybe that does kind of push it. I, I mean, I, I said earlier that I do think this is um, not a romance story. It just presents itself as one in order to mm-hmm. tell a more complex political story. Uh, and, and thus having the characters almost become self-aware at the end. I kind of like that. Hmm. Like, like yeah. to, the way I look at this text, and I know it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm cheap shotting it. I, I, I liked it. I, I think it has this, this sort of limitless potential for allegory um, that I really deeply admire. Yeah, and I, I think it's mm-hmm. doing really cool things. I, I think if you come into this looking for a standard, conventional narrative romance with you know, um, typical plot movements, you're going to feel alienated. And as you said, Anna, maybe that's the point in the end to take that romance off the table and have you look back at the story in hindsight. Well, it's, it's interesting that the allegory is almost less beauty and the beast. Like my reading of the beauty and the beast story is that a big part of it is the power and patriarchy that the beast represents. Mm -hmm. And this beast doesn't have that power in a way. The man I can't remember the name of literally any other character in this story, but Dr. <laughs> Lynn. Uh, but the, yeah, the charm power. The, the pretender, guy. the pretender son of Dr. Doom. Yeah. He is more the beast allegory. Mm, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm just like wondering about why use romance in this story. Like why use beauty and the beast as a theme? Like, is it trying to subvert romance by using sort of the romance tropes? I mean, I will say like, I said that this is one of my favorite series and we've just been like trashing it. But I mean, I think the charm of this series is that it's got the charm that the Senti comics often have where it's just so many ideas thrown at the wall and there are so many things going on. And it is very like resistant, as you suggested to like, all conventions of representation in terms of like telling a cohesive story in terms of kind of like even like making sense in certain ways and yet I think if you're gonna like this story you have to embrace those things as charming like it's just like the weirdness of this story that like kind of is the charm of it and like again that's gonna be your mileage is gonna vary on that but like I'm still curious about like I mean clearly like it's taking up romance on purpose and I mean I see some sort of like linkage between the genericness of romance and the genericness of the superhero genre and like an effort to kind of subvert those things perhaps, although that's maybe going too far. But I mean, what do you think? Like why use romance in the story at all? 
Well, I think in general, a lot of, okay, so just a first comment on, on what you were saying earlier. Um, I, I think one of the greatest strengths of Nesenti as a writer is her ability to approach the absurd unironically. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and like Marvel is famous for doing absurd ironically, like constantly they're still doing it. it it's it's what Deadpool is. Um, Nesenti is a very rare writer um, who can uh, approach it with sincerity. And I, I do think that that makes her work um, largely impenetrable to a popular audience. Uh, and I think maybe she doesn't always get her due because of that. Again, as you said, so many ideas at play, um, so much potential commentary. In terms of why she's using romance, I, I think it gives you a character grounding that is typical and um, maybe even, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, um, commodifiable. Uh, come read the story about Beast and Dazzler. I, I, I don't know that she could have written a miniseries about Dazzler doing kind of a, a Sunset Boulevard story. Um, and had anybody kind of care about it. Uh, I mean, if we if we look at the story sort of objectively, Beast has pretty much nothing to do in it. This is an Allison story, very, very clearly. The romance is just there to kind of um, create this superficial trapping. And in that sense, when I, I think back about what Anna was saying earlier, yeah, I, I do think it's um, a sort of false front. Um, it, it's a way to lure into the reader and then take away exactly what you had promised them uh, in order to shine a spotlight on the other issues that, as I said, are not easily um, um, commodified for a mass audience. I do like like the core allegory to me, the the connection between superhero and Hollywood celebrityism yeah. and the dark side of that. Like all of that is so fascinating. Yeah, the self-awareness but is I think, great. I, I think the romance kind of comes more with the territory of the Hollywood story. Well, yeah, there's a number of comments throughout the text about things that aren't necessarily sort of like a sex and love romance being romantic. I mean, the gladiatorial fights are described as romantic. It's the romance of the spotlight right. and the romance of mm -hmm. the fight. And I mean, we can think about the romance between some of the supporting characters between, um, sorry, what is it? Poltergeist and Link and Link, right? Because mm -hmm. they go off together um, to oh, start yeah. a new life, whereas Beast and Dazzler do not. So, I mean, maybe it's sort of playing with those different levels and types of romance, too, that the superhero genre actually productively opens up. And I mean, in bad ways or good ways, like whatever, it's not as reductive as that. But I mean, I thought that was interesting, the way it's kind of talking about different types of romance and presenting different types of romance differently. So would we be talking about sublimation there? The idea of um, sort of channeling romantic or sexual desires into things like fighting or more, again, self-aware kind of ways, like superheroes. Well, I think it's pretty like overt. Where the Hollywood story would go is that she is uh, kind of forced into some sort of yeah, allegorical pornography, sexual trafficking. But it's like, no, of course we're not doing that. We're, we're fighting in yeah. a gladiatorial ring. What, what do you expect? <laughs> Yeah, it's got a real Boogie Nights vibe to it. Yeah, <laughs> I love, like, I mean, Simon Williams' Wonder Man is present in both of these stories. And he was so, like, horrible oh. in Beauty and the Beast. Like, Beast is like, man, Dazzler, like, seems like she's in real trouble. And Simon's just like, eh, whatever. He's <laughs> just, like, the worst. Yeah. That's all. So barely present, yeah. <laughs> He's not a good person. Yeah. 
anyway, let's turn to Vision of the Scarlet Witch because we barely talked about it so far. I mean, did we find that this romance was like a little bit more convincing? I mean, I suggested earlier that I think that romance is more sort of genuinely at the center of this narrative than the other one. Were we more yeah. convinced by the romance in Vision of the Scarlet Witch? Absolutely. Or at least on my part, yeah. I, I love the way, like, I, I, Englehart balances their relationship with each other, with their exploration of mm. each other, mm-hmm. or of themselves. I mean, I love the thing that goes on, and it starts right in the first issue, which, like, that first issue is just one of my favorite comics, like, all on its own. But <laughs> they're in the basement, and, like, the evil government agents are, you know threatening basically to disassemble Vige as usual and <laughs> Vision makes them so uncomfortable by talking about the nature of his like love and like the nature of his human development mm-hmm. and they're just like yeah. oh stop stop you're <laughs> killing us with all this talk of feelings <laughs> and it's like the power that they have over the government agents is the power of love and their unashamed like ability to discuss and enact their love in front of them and then their huge rebellious act in that scene is that you know Wanda busts in she's like I'm taking my husband out of here and then they kill in the elevator in the glass elevator in front of everybody as they travel from Ah. the basement like back to the surface and make all of the government agents watch them do it it is one of my favorite (laughs) moments in marvel comics it is yeah it was probably yeah it was my favorite moment of the series i i mean a great series but like that was just so so good Just, just to add an extra little kind of kind of kudos to this um I think in superhero comics, when we talk about romance, we're almost always talking about characters getting together. Mm. And we have to recognize mm-hmm. that this is a story of characters who are already together, mm-hmm. advancing with their lives, which might be the hardest yeah. kind of romance to write. Uh, and I, I'm saying this as, a, as, you know, a boring married man, <laughs> but, but I really loved the portrayal of their dynamic with each other and how their relationship continues to evolve and advance, mm-hmm. even though they've reached what is in pop culture, essentially the finish line. Uh, of a romance so i mean again extra points for degree of difficulty in my eyes yeah Yeah, for sure i mean the thing that i really find so revolutionary about the series and i legitimately think this is the best depiction of a romance in superhero comics of all time that is how i view this series and it's a lot because of because of what you're saying andrew that you know we have an expectation that the will they or won't they is the only thing that's interesting we also have an expectation that superheroes can't be happy in love and there are storytelling reasons for that. These are serialized monthly comics. So, I mean, you know, like you're saying, the expectation that romantic bliss is bad for drama, so we can't have that as a story. But there are also gender components of that, right? The idea that mm-hmm. if the male superhero in particular, like, quote unquote, settles down, gets, quote unquote, domestic domesticated like right that we won't have a story to tell anymore so proving that you can still have the story proving that being domesticated doesn't mean you stop being a superhero and that's true for both vision and wanda in this series and proving Mm -hmm. that just by existing in this space as superheroes superhero exploits are gonna find you and create conflict no matter what and we see that so literally in this series where they'll just be having a walk in the park and talking about maybe (laughs) they want to have a baby and then suddenly zombies you know like it's just like it's so, so deliberate and it mm-hmm. happens like four times in this series like they'll just be doing some normal coupley thing and then the superhero world intrudes and so the conflict is not relationship conflict there is basically no conflict between vision and scarlet witch in terms of their love for each other throughout this series like a couple of little moments but nothing extreme at all and 
the conflict is just superhero conflicts and then they fight the superhero conflicts together as a couple it's like such a utopian series and it just stands out as like almost unique in the history of the genre for that reason and it's so like low stakes superhero dumb like i mean the toad <laughs> God, I love the conversation that they have with Spider-Man, where Spider-Man's like, really, Toad? Like, he's not a big deal. Also, I think I made friends with him there in our last adventure. And then Vision's like, no, he's like a serious supervillain. I consider him a legitimate threat to my life. And like, <laughs> Peter's just like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> so good. I, I, I love that that story basically hangs on Peter being a really bad friend. <laughs> it kind of does. Like that whole like so there's a team up with Spider-Man in one of the final issues, but like most of well, at least half of the team up, and this is like the genre bending of that series, is like him hanging out at Vision Wanda's house as Peter Parker, taking photographs of them for the Daily Bugle. And it's like he gets like integrated into this into this romance as well and he has all these reflections about like like it's so deliberate like there's like this meta commentary going on about you know that's almost like an argument for the viability of romantic stories within the superhero genre where you have peter parker having all these thought bubbles where he's like boy i don't know why i could never make it work romantically look at how good like vision and scarlet witch are doing i wonder if i could have that and he goes on and on and on like that <laughs> it's just like the... i i loved all the foils couples yeah. they set up throughout mm -hmm. this that was great yeah yeah who like yeah we should talk about the quicksilver thing for sure but i i want to get at that question though still about like what's viable about the relationship between vision and scarlet witch like i think that there's like an ethos of equality that they're going for here i don't think they achieve it perfectly this isn't you know like in terms of gender mm -hmm. politics there's stuff we can talk about and i do want to talk about it but like what is the nature of the connection between these characters as you as it came across to you reading this series yeah, they, they really emphasize their own self-growth, but also like the way that their other encourages that growth, encourages that exploration. Uh, Vision is not becoming a sorcerer, but uh, he is like very supportive of the Scarlet Witch, like taking on a pupil and exploring that side of herself and kind of vice versa, that we see the, the Vision like going to the other remaining invaders and asking about what happened to his past body. And again, Wanda isn't there, but she is generally supportive of these endeavors. I mean, I'm kind of kind of get us at the like sort of essence of their connection as like, you know, a computer like rational being versus a being defined by chaotic emotional energy and kind of how that kind of plays off each other in this series like in terms of because I think you're absolutely right Michael that it's structured around them having sort of individual character growth that plays off of each other but I mean it's almost like vision mm -hmm. is this co rational computer that is like learning to be more emotional and she is this hyper emotional woman who's learning control in some ways right. like is that fair see I never I don't know I don't read I generally don't read Wanda that way because she's so often used as a foil with her brother mm. who is all emotional chaos. That's true. That's true. It is probably very but, but unfair. I don't have the same background of Avengers. No, but it's I probably unfair for me to ascribe that to Wanda, given that you're absolutely right. Like Pietro is the one who is emotionally unstable of the two. I mean, one of the things that I um, found myself, and this is just to connect to sort of contemporary culture. Um, one of the things that I found myself thinking, having recently watched the WandaVision series um, was just how much some of this, the early dynamics that we see in this series would have made um, that TV series land so much harder um, mm -hmm. towards the end of it. Like, like those early relationships sort of 
periods of happiness um, and the interplay between them. I, I really like that. And for me, I think, that, I mean, Anna's already spoken to this and Michael a little bit as well, um, but so much of their relationship is defined by um, certainty and an unwillingness to compromise. They are unapologetically in love with each other. And if we compare that to Beauty and the Beast, where again, they just kind of split up over four panels because they need to like find themselves and the world isn't very kind. I love that the world is incredibly unkind to, to, to Wanda and the Vision and judges them constantly. And their entire attitude is just, fuck it, we're in love. Try and stop us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought that made for a really kind of cool source of conflict because it was a conflict that they very specifically took on together uh, and with resolve. And I just love, again, like on that meta commentary, you know, level that the way that we can challenge the like toxic masculinity, which is bound up in sort of lone wolf individualism and all these things and like patriarchal masculinity of the superhero genre is to just be really fucking in love (laughs) and like Mm -hmm. bring this kind of like connotatively feminine genre into the superhero genre and do it so blatantly, so unapologetically. And again, that gets us right back to the kiss in the elevator, right? And like, you know, this could be me reading too much into it and yet i do think that this comic is very deliberate about making that statement and like making space for romance and you know something like that elevator scene Mm -hmm. again is just so deliberate that way yeah i mean that's something that i very much like was sad that was missing from the wandavision show i think the wandavision show was much better with wanda's psychology than this comic is i don't think anybody can argue that but at the mm-hmm. same time, not having the celebratory aspect of the romance as emphasized, I see right. why they didn't go there because there's a fear that that wouldn't be like an experimental enough story or like sort of like a convincing enough story. And yet, to me, it's not acknowledging how disruptive having that sort of more conventional, more celebratory, more utopic romance within a space that's conventionally disallowed it could be, right? Because there's an assumption that Mm -hmm. romance is an even lower form of culture than superheroes, right? Because at least it's, at least superheroes are masculine, right? But romance is feminine. So it's even worse in terms of, you know, cultural capital. So I just, I get like frustrated when we reject the possibility of successful romance because, there's yeah. a lot of sort of cultural expectations bound up there. And so like making sort of Wanda and Vision a tragic romance is not really my favorite choice, but I don't think the Vision the Scarlet Witch show actually did that necessarily. I think I was surprised that it didn't go full on tragic romance with it. And I was grateful for that, but I definitely would have liked to see more happiness in it as well. And it's still like the most romance that I think has been explored in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I remember, I think it was a Twitter thread I saw recently that counted every kiss that's happened over these like 20 some movies. (laughs) And the fact that they are easily countable says quite a lot. Um, Coming back to, uh, again, what you guys were kind of already saying, that's my job today is like regurgitating what you said. (laughs) when Anna was talking about merging sort of genres, I do think that's one of the most go-to ways in which romance is merged with superhero, which is to set up a superhero tragedy, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we're essentially talking about fridging in a weird way, but I think there's this constant idea in the reader's head that any relationship is eventually going to become motivation for revenge. Like that, that's why you get together. So you have someone to avenge later on. And part of that is just that comics go on forever. They don't have an end. So, of course, every relationship is going to end. Um, but I, I think when you have moments like this um, of just, you know, two characters together and it's not, you know, boring as hell and not just setting up the tragedy that, spoiler alert, is absolutely coming to both Wanda and Vision, not that far away. 
um, from this series, I, I think it's special. And I think that's one of the reasons we, we have to appreciate this series. Um, a quick, like, add-on to that. Um, I came across a uh, much later uh, response that Engelhart wrote for the uh, Gail Simone's uh, Women in Refrigerators blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote, ever since the original, or basically he is addressing here, why... Well, first he makes a list of all of the characters, female characters he's created that have been since killed or some other way, like seriously diminished. Uh, His answer, uh, ever since the original Captain Marvel Superman, most comics characters have been arrested male adolescents because most comic readers are male adolescents and male adolescents fear strong women. I like all sorts of characters, including strong women and weak women and weak men and gays and androids and big green monsters and every possible permutation thereof. So I'm as upset as anyone at how people kill my strong women as soon as I let them go. Mm. It's been really blatant. None of these in the first lines above would have suffered these fates if I'd been writing them. I particularly miss Arisia, Katma, Mantis, and the Scarlet Witch's twins. That is really that doesn't surprise me at all. Like based on the work that Engelhard has done for Marvel, like I am constantly sort of like confused that he's not sort of remembered as a more kind of iconic creator. Because personally, he's done a number of my favorite comics. I mean, he did the first run on Defenders, which is amazing. He did this series. Mm-hmm. He did the Nomad Captain Avengers. America series. Yeah, like I mean, his work on Silver Surfer, where he introduces um, well, he doesn't introduce Mantis there, but it, there's um. There's a really similar kind of like dynamic between Mantis and Silver Surfer in Silver Surfer where like she helps him recover his lost emotions and they have like a very like interesting sexual union like on an asteroid. And you know, so he's like clearly like interested in sort of playing with the romantic and sexual possibilities of the superhero genre. And like, yeah, I think his work deserves sort of to be reevaluated in some of those ways for sure. Well, I mean, that kind of gets us at, I wanted to ask you about queer subtext in both of these comics, because although the comics both focus on heterosexual romances, I think that there are ways in which they're queering heteronormativity as well. And I'm particularly thinking of the Thanksgiving issue of the Vision and the Scarlet Witch series and, you know... (laughs) their very zany found family that they have there and kind of some of the metaphors that are at play there. But I mean, do you think that that's fair? Is there queer subtext to either of these comics? And I mean, I'm using queer in a very broad sense, just like in terms of sort of queering heteronormativity. To bring up uh, Wonder Man again, there are some that push almost towards, uh, there are some uh, ways of depicting the particular love triangle there that verge almost on poly at times but maybe not so much in this particular series. Well, you're a fan of the like Wonder Man beast relationship. Are you not Michael? It is the one redeeming thing (laughs) of Wonder Man. Yes. Or beast perhaps. (laughs) I might go go there with both of them. I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. there is like a way that I can sort of squint and be like, Ooh, this like beauty and the beast comic would be like much more interesting if it was kind of a triangle between Simon Williams and Hank McCoy and Alison Blair, rather than kind of the story that we do have. Do we think that there's other queer subtext to beauty and the beast though? I mean, like it's certainly using Mm -hmm. the mutant metaphor in ways that sort of emphasizing the shared outsiderness of these characters. And I mean, that scene on the beach where 
they're treated as mm -hmm. disgusting by the crowd, right? And like it affects their view of themselves and they're no longer able to be intimate with each other because of the ways that they're made to feel ashamed. So are we seeing the queer subtext coming out there? I mean, Andrew, you must be able to speak to this in terms of how it fits in with some of the sexual metaphors going on in X-Men at the same time. Yeah, it, it's a quite literal textbook adaptation of um, Ramzi Fawaz's concept of queer mutanity. Uh, you've got the idea of these um, persecuted societal outcasts who create a found family. You know what I mean? And then, then once you have that in play, um, you're sort of automatically creating these linkages to, I mean, as you said, Anna, potential queer interpretations of um, scenes that don't have to be um, read that way. Uh, but obviously the discussion of um, um, people's choices being not favored by society, uh, the discussion of, you know, again, the, the socioeconomic what does a society do with its misfits and how does it exploit them uh, in sometimes very mm -hmm. subtle, systematic ways? Uh, yeah, like I, I don't think there's any question whatsoever that Nascenti has the treatment of um, sort of um, people of a queer sexuality on her mind a lot when she's writing this story. It, it, it's far more, more overt, even than things that you would see in the average X-Men comic at this time period. Do we want to go there with some of the kind of disease metaphors and stuff going on in Beauty and the Beast, or is that going to be too mm. much of a dark turn for the pod? In terms of 80s context, AIDS crisis, queer metaphors, all of this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know that it's worth spending a lot of time on, but it's just the way that Allison ends up being kind of outcast from society because she's, you know, losing control of her body. She ends up at this heartbreak hotel. That's where she kind of discovers the found family. Yeah. There's like some stuff going on there. I'm sort of just thinking about the timeline. Um, Nascenti was very much in touch with the zeitgeist uh, and a very um, intelligent, um, educated writer. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do think that we're definitely playing with that. We're, we're playing with the HIV AIDS epidemic at a time when we barely really knew what that was. And I think maybe that manifests in some of the broadness of the metaphor that she creates. Um, but, but even its presence I think is important uh, and worth at least acknowledging, even if um, again, I don't, I don't think she has enough, information to really cultivate it into a precise metaphor at this point uh, again except just to say that this is a thing and it's you know um sort of being used in a dehumanizing way uh, in mass culture uh, and denying sort of individual agency as a result of that so again it's kind of broad but i do think it's in play I just thought it was worth bringing up in terms of explaining to people who might not have kind of the attachment to this kind of story, you know, like why we might get these very strong attachments and why some of the queer subtext, even though it's not made explicit, can be very important in texts like this in terms of emphasizing the humanity of these characters within these certain types of, you know, circumstances in which they're being persecuted in certain ways and, you know, we will fight for those meanings a lot of the time because they become so sort of important to us. And, you know, uh, I think on another podcast we were doing recently, one of our guests said something about, you know, like, we have to be careful talking about, you know, subtext sometimes because we are talking about what we're bringing to the story right. rather than necessarily what's at hand in the story. And it's both things because the story is making those possibilities available. But I think in terms of describing how anybody becomes super attached to a story like this, you do have to sort of consider what we're bringing to the story and, you know, what we're making out of the, because this is a story that's sort of full of possibilities and gaps and, and, and metaphors that like 
are not explicit, right? But I mean, that allows a space in which we can bring a lot to the story, which, you know, again, mileage will vary on that. But I think it's a story that has a lot of space for affiliation because its metaphors are so broad. Yeah, I think the the sort of dominant, very, very broad metaphor is um, just the idea of societal culpability uh, and how a lot of the um, sort of aspects of minority in, in general, very general, um, culture that are deemed as undesirable by a majority society are in fact symptoms of marginalization, right? Uh, the idea being that the, this tribe of outcasts, they participate in the, this gruesome blood sport and everyone should be appalled by that, except you've given them nothing else. You've pushed mm-hmm. them into it. You've, you've charmed them and you've cajoled them and you've starved them. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, they start doing this thing that you can then use to denigrate them. Um, so I, I think that to me, that's the big takeaway from Beauty and the Beast. I, I think that's maybe the ultimate message that comes out of it. And it's an important message because because there is a directness to it. Uh, she's pointing the finger at something um, that is, again, general, but but also kind of specific because she is clearly assigning a blame uh, outside of putting it on the individuals themselves. And I, I think that's a really cool message. And, and as you said, Anna, it's, it, it applies to a lot of different sort of symbols, groups and possibilities. Yeah, a lot of different sort of experiences of persecution and outsiderness. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very blatant the way, you know, their romance starts to flourish a little bit when they're in the Heartbreak Hotel, you know, like separate from all of those societal pressures. And then when they're back in public at the beach, I think that that's one of my favorite moments from the comic where they are, they had been walking, you know, with his arm over her shoulders. And then when they get treated as disgusting by the people on the beach, they step away from each other and they each have a thought bubble about they can't touch each other anymore because they just don't feel the same way with that spectacle like that they've been turned into. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of um, makes them self-aware and aware that, yeah. that they weren't before. Yeah, for sure. Well, what about some of the queer tub- subtext going on in Vision and Scarlet Witch? I mean, I'm really interested in, because I think the found family aspect of Vision and Scarlet Witch is very, very like deliberate and very interesting. I mean, let's talk about that Thanksgiving issue, which I think is just one of the greatest comics of all time. What did you make of the Thanksgiving <laughs> issue, Michael? Did it stand out to you the way it stood out to me? Or like, <laughs> was it just too silly to stand? I absolutely loved that issue. Uh, Usually the kind of downtime issues in comics are my favorite. And this is almost a series of downtimes in a way, Uh, although there's plenty of fights as well. And that's, that one was a real standout that there's so much tension from uh, Magneto's presence and also just the normal background tension of like, Oh, Pietro's around and saying stuff. Uh, <laughs> oh God, Pietro. I mean, it's always a good time. I mean, for, for our <laughs> listeners, if you're not aware, at this point in Marvel continuity, uh, Magneto was the father of, of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. It has been retconned and then re-retconned a million, million, million times. At that time, it was still relatively new and they're sort of dealing with the fallout of that. And within the pages of X-Men comics, Magneto had become the leader of the New Mutants. So he was on this sort of like, hero upswing and so that's part of the context of the thanksgiving issue as well so they have this thanksgiving in which all these different members of their sort of what vision considers their extended family and who gets to be included in that is really interesting like namor gets to be included for the very strange reason of the fact that 
at this point in continuity, Vision's body was thought to be the body of the original Human Torch, who, of course, fought Namor and befriended Namor back in the golden age of comics during World War II. So Namor is part of the family through that connection that he has to the body that Vision is actually <laughs> occupying. So, I mean, it's just like the the tendrils of this family that they have is just really, really interesting to me. I mean, it really well, is like, again, one of those commentaries on the types of like almost inherently queered bonds that you have like mm -hmm. in the superhero genre where, you know it's always so much about fan family, right? It's like Batman adopting like Dick Grayson and bringing him into his house and them starting a family together, right? It's fascinating to like, there are lots of, there are like other minor reasons for Namor to be there too, that Englehart is writing the comic that he's appearing yeah. in, or it maybe in West Coast Avengers. Um, I don't actually know if he's in that, but I'm not sure either. let's move on past that. Um, there's the, other fact that Wanda has like a one-off line. Yeah, these are the Avengers, or I think Captain America has a one-off line. These are the Avengers who didn't have anything else to do at Thanksgiving <laughs> yet. <laughs> the others are on personal missions. Not that not that they're having their own Thanksgiving. They are on missions. Mm -hmm. And and that fits with the found family, that the Avengers are a family in that sense, that you get kind of a ragtag, this is who was available, but also like they come, they, they are there, they are present because of that bond. Uh, the way I think there's also Wonder Man, or does Wonder Man make Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, not. he's not at, he's yeah. not at the Thanksgiving, but his mother is yeah. at the Thanksgiving. But his mother yeah. is, which is an <laughs> another, like, a sign of Vision's sense of family and what that includes. Uh, their, their real estate agent is there, <laughs> which uh, does not work out great for a few people. Uh, their neighbors who also happen to have superpowers come by and just a wonderful like confluence of the people in their lives and just like the strangeness within the mundane right i mean getting back to that idea that you know like a domestic superhero story doesn't have to be boring or heteronormative it's like they move into this town and like oh hey guess what your neighbors are magicians who are also mutants who are also international jewel thieves <laughs> is just a thing that happens when you move to the suburbs well i mean the other side of this is that i think there's a weird there's yes this found family aspect but also this uh normativity that i think mm, comes yeah. largely through vision and his idea that i am a human but i'm also a man and everything that that means there's the weird issue with the enchantress but also the like even in this Thanksgiving issue, uh, wonder it's very specific. Wanda is the one who made the food. Vision is the one who's at the center of the table. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the things that I am unsatisfied with with the portrayal of their relationship in this series is the heavy emphasis on he is a man and this is like his like robot body is just a shell that he has to use to present to the world because ooh that's not my favorite reading of like what he might be mm. able to offer sort of Wanda in the context of that relationship like in these relationships like having to deal with bodies that are like physically othered in some ways I much prefer the reading of like the otherness is a feature not a bug and this is kind of trying to rewrite it in the sense that you know like his physical appearance, his like physical substance is just how he is forced to live, but it's not what Wanda is attracted to. She's attracted to the thing beneath that surface. And I'm like, Ugh, yeah. 
I don't know, man. Mm -hmm. Like, isn't the fact that he like is a robot, isn't that sexy too? And like, isn't that part of their bond? And I think that would be a more interesting reading of the physical aspect of that relationship to me. So I don't love that in the series. That's one of my crit criticisms of it for sure. Cause it's so deliberate about that. Do you think that that's mm -hmm. something that, I mean, either in this story or earlier stories has been implicit though? Yes. Ah, that's hard. I mean, the way that their romance worked, you know, in the Avengers stories leading up to this, it was very much, they did have like an emotional bond in terms of them being outsiders among outsiders, right? You know, they were strangers right. from a strange land and they can have this sort of empathy that they build up like through her being a mutant and him being a robot and sorry, a synthesoid, whatever. And, you know, that's like kind of the nature of their bond. So it was a spiritual bond in a sense. And yet it's always definitely had a physical component. It's just the nature of that physical component was never really teased out. And it's hard because I, I can totally see how someone would have read it and been like, oh, yeah, yeah, their bond is just spiritual and emotional. I never read it that way. But because yeah. you don't have one or the other, like you could have read it one or the other ways. I mean, that's sort of the presence and absence of super sex, right? I mean my one of my other favorite scenes from this vision and the, the, the scarlet witch comic which really like sort of articulates that presence and absence so perfectly is the scene where she is impregnated right and i've written about that scene mm -hmm. before for my middle spaces piece about the vision's penis but it's a really fascinating scene the way it is very explicit about the physical connection between them so what happens in the scene is that there's this outpouring of magical energy and wanda has to control it somehow and she has this vision of agatha harkness telling her like don't just like control the power use the power and she and what she and vision had been talking about having children so she's trying to control the power and she can't she's falling down vision is like i have to get up and like support her like literally which like is a meta commentary once again on the nature of their relationship so he comes makes himself really heavy and holds her from behind it's a very sexual pose um <laughs> and then you see like the outpouring of energy sort of extending from the loins of these two characters in my reading it's sort of because wanda's controlling the power this is quite queer because there's almost sort of a phallic component that's extending from her body rather than his even though he's also implicitly penetrating her from the back and then you have this like total post-coital scene afterwards where they're lying there together and there's like a plume of smoke, like as though they're like having a cigarette after doing it. <laughs> it's just like amazing. I mean, so the thing that I love about that is that there is a physical component and a spiritual component and the two things are like merged, you know, like he is supporting mm -hmm. her emotionally and physically at the same time. And like, it's not shying away from the physical aspect because the scene is very sexual the way it's drawn. And yet it's super sex so the sex doesn't actually happen right like so it is like metaphorical sex as well so technically in the way that we traditionally understand these things we could actually read these characters as virginal i've got mixed feelings about that again i sort of like the way we can read that as like a queered sexuality but i think there's definitely a counter reading there where you know like not being explicit about them sort of having an explicitly physical relationship can make it seem like they don't and I don't know. I mean, did you guys have feelings about that? I mean, like, this is sort of maybe just my preoccupation that is just taking control of this conversation. No, I think, I mean, I mean, the first thing we should note is that Anna is objectively the world's leading expert on vision sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to claim that. I wouldn't want to claim that. No, I mean, who, who would argue? There's, there's no one else in that conversation. Um, Listen, if you want to claim uh, Nightcrawler's PR manager, I think you yeah. can claim this one too. <laughs> 
Um, one scene that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if this this goes contrary to what you're saying, but I, I think it maybe adds to the sexual suggestiveness. Um, is in issue one when Vision's talking about his functions, and we talked about yeah. this. And he says it twice. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. do all the bodily yeah, functions yeah. that a man can do. <laughs> and you know that every reader, regardless of their age or maturity level, is like, wink, wink, I get it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so it's definitely being surfaced by Engelhart. Um, yeah, no, so I, I think even though it might be potentially counterintuitive to what you're saying, I think it actually supports it. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that... I, 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 <laughs> Speaking to my being an expert on this topic, I remember the first time that Vision took off his costume and it was made clear that like, because it wasn't clear up to that point whether his costume was part of his body or whether it was a costume. But when he goes on his honeymoon with Wanda, he strips down to a bathing suit. And that's when we know that it is a costume he can take off and he has this red skin underneath. So I remember just being like, oh, this is an interesting introduction <laughs> like to this universe. And we see that surfaced again here. He, there's the scene where they're hanging out around the fireplace and he's wearing the robe and he's like naked except for mm-hmm. the robe. So, I mean, it's made very clear that, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, he has some sort of like human-like body and he's not like just a robot, right? Like, I mean, that's certainly surfaced both in the visuals and in the text. Is there anything else like super pressing that either of you wanted to bring up? I could obviously keep talking about Vision of Scarlet Witch in particular for another like six hours. Um, just just one thing I just want to say um, genuinely quickly. Um, so for a long time, I taught at um, an interdisciplinary unit called the Center for Society, Technology and Values. Um, and one of the, the lectures that we gave was on um, machine sex and the history of machine sex. Uh, which is a really cool field of study uh, about this this weird sort of social taboo we have about the extent to which technology is integrated into our sexuality. Um, even though it's hilarious, the extent to which it is, and we pretend like it's not. And even when WandaVision was coming out, you see memes about don't bang the machine. Uh, and it's funny because then it's a picture of Wanda. Um, but, it, you know, in, in spite of that sort of snickering mentality, like, again, we have machines deeply integrated to our sexuality and when we look at a lot of um, articles about pop culture representations of that um, wanda and vision are very deeply integrated into those conversations along with blade runner and a couple other um, sort of notable pop culture stories so i just wanted to point to that as kind of um, another interesting philosophical uh, and possibly progressive element that we see in the story to some extent Oh, goodness. I would like to talk about that definitely for like an hour. I mean, I was very bothered by a number of the sort of like Vision and Scarlet Witch uh, memes going around about the show. You know, there was a suggestion at one point in the show that basically she was sexually assaulting him because she had constructed this world and everything. And there were sort of a number of comments about, yeah, but I mean, he can't have agency anyway because he's just an object. And, you know, like people having sort of funny jokes about like, yeah, she's having sex with a toaster. I mean, like, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And like, oh, I can't even tell you how deeply that upset me as somebody who has like a deep empathy with Vision as a character. And I mean, it's just a joke, right? But like, on the other hand, it's really not because you're taking, you know, how do I want to say this so that it doesn't sound dumb? Because these are fictional characters. So like, I mean, it is dumb, but, you know there's an element in which you're like shaming her pleasure that she's taking from this relationship. And then also assuming that sex has to work a certain way. So you're imposing like a heteronormativity on it. Mm -hmm. You're like stripping the agency from like, 
I mean, because there's so many different ways that you can read vision as like a metaphor for disability, right? So, I mean, stripping away his sexual agency and his ability to consent has huge, huge, huge consequences. And yeah, don't do that, <laughs> basically. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Definitely, I was disappointed by sort of the juvenileness with which people sort of approached that question of like, what does it mean for this woman to have sex with a character who is a synthesoid? And it was disappointing to see people sort of just resort to like puerile humor to talk about that rather than use this as an invitation to talk about more complex and more interesting and more queer things. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I think we will wrap things up there. Although, as it says at the end of the Vision and the Scarlet Witch series, although the episode is ending, our lives continue. And you can follow our exploits into our very next episode, which we will tease in a moment. But before we do that, we're going to do some recommendations related to the comics that we read for this month. Starting with you, Andrew, what would you like to recommend for our listeners? Uh, in the spirit of Beauty and the Beast, I wanted to recommend another roughly contemporary, unlikely Marvel team-up uh, in the form of Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom, Triumph and Torment um, by Roger Stern and Mike Mignola. It is a very strange, pardon the pun, um, story about like a wizard contest and Doctor Doom's mother's soul uh, and stunning illustration and kind of weird and, and I don't know, maybe out of left field a little bit. Um, but I don't know, so was Beauty and the Beast. So I think there's a real creative <laughs> potential there that we might enjoy. Okay, how about you, Michael? Uh, I'm going to recommend something. I am at least half convinced I've recommended this before, but that's fine. Uh, it was many months ago if I did. Uh, a manga that one of my favorite manga romances, uh, Kazumi Kun, Can't You Read the Room? And this is a kind of teen romance manga. Uh, the general idea is that the very popular girl has an attraction to the class weirdo. And you could easily play that for some very like stereotype wish fulfillment type story, but it's really more about her than about him. It's about her kind of uh, coming to terms with her own desires and in a really lighthearted comedy way that I find very appealing. Oh, I haven't read either of those and they both sound excellent. Um, I'm worried that I've recommended mine before as well, but maybe that's just because I've been writing so much Nightcrawler stuff lately that I just <laughs> have completely lost track. But I am recommending Age of X-Men, the amazing Nightcrawler series mm. from 2019 by Shannon McGuire and Juan Forgary. Um, just an interesting story. I mean, the context of it is kind of complicated. Um, X-Men has created a pocket universe in which the X-Men have perfect lives. They are beloved by the public and yet sex and relationships are disavowed in this reality. So that's the price that you pay for perfection. And it's especially hard for poor Nightcrawler because he is the most famous mutant in the world in this reality. He is a Hollywood star who is specifically starring in Hollywood blockbusters that he makes at his own movie studio alongside his perennial co-star Megan, who he had a love triangle with back in Excalibur for many, many years that was never consummated. So it gets consummated here over and over and over again as the world keeps being reset because the power of their love is just too expansive for this world that disallows love. 
it is a very romantic story, but it's also a very tragic story in certain ways with certain commentaries mm-hmm. on the relationship between sort of the utopic desires of the superhero genre and the ways that those do or or don't work with love and sex and romance. So if I haven't recommended that before, I'm recommending it now and you should all go and read it today. I really liked it. Yeah. Okay, so next time we are going to be looking at one of these recommendations and not the Nightcrawler <laughs> one. We are going to be reading Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom Triumph and Torment by Roger Stern and Mike Mignola, paired with the Darth Vader series by Kieran Gillen and Salvatore LaRocca. So until then, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again in a month. Bye-bye.